Welcome to the Jersey Herd podcast, brought to you by Jersey Finance. In this podcast, we'll speak about the latest news, views and insights on Jersey's financial industry. Hi, my name is Alan Wood. I'm the Global Head of Business Development at Jersey Finance. The effects of COVID-19 crisis in sub-Saharan Africa has been significant. It's impacted trade, commodity prices, remittances, tourism and global value chains. The World Bank is forecasting a decline in growth in the region from 2.4% in 2019 to between minus 2% and minus 5% this year, estimating that African economies could lose between 37 billion US dollars to 79 billion US dollars of output. This will have a huge impact on the continent. This podcast will focus on the COVID-19 political security and economic risks and also look at the opportunities post this pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Nevin, partner and chief economist at PwC West Africa. Andrew is an iconic figure in Nigeria, playing a number of roles to advance the Nigerian economy. I'm also joined by Patricia Rodriguez, analyst at Control Risk based in Nairobi. Patricia provides political, operational and security risk analysis across the entire East Africa region. In this podcast, we will focus our attention on East and West Africa, given that Andrew and Patricia cover them regions. So thank you very much, uh, Andrew and Patricia, for uh, joining me today. Um, Andrew, if we could start you, with you first, just to set the scene of, of some of the challenges. Uh, you know, how big a, an economic impact will COVID-19 have on Africa? Um, and, you know, when you look at East and West, is there any, any difference that you're picking up on? Well, I, I think that uh, the, the economic impact is enormous, and I genuinely hope that it's the, the greatest economic impact um, uh, issue we ever have in our lifetime because it's going to be larger than anything any of us have, have seen over since, since the Great Depression. I mean, to put a number on it, I think a, a reasonable number to triangulate from all of the what's happening around the continent and some of the projections, you might say minus 5 to minus 10% GDP contraction. Uh, but I think what's, what's critical to realize about this is we're all economists. We now realize that one person's um, spending is another person's income. And back in February, people were really uh, too sanguine, didn't really understand what would be the economic impact of locking down billions of people. And now we understand on, on, on that. In terms of the difference between the East and the West, um, obviously Nigeria in particular as an oil producing economy has taken a, a particular hit. Um, so it's going to be at the you know the worst worst end of the range. Countries that import oil get some little lift from that, but I, to be honest, it's a it's a minor it's a minor change. If we have a five to ten percent impact on the African economy, um, and then we add in the population growth, it's just an enormous challenge for us going forward. And if I'm right in saying you've been based in Lagos for the the last uh, ten years, um, you know Nigeria was already going through some challenges with the population growth versus. Uh, the economic growth. What are your forecasts going into 2021? Right. So, so we've been in a situation where we've had declining income per capita for at least five years in Nigeria. Certainly, 2016 we had an outright recession, um, and then of course we have close to three percent population growth. So, even though the headline GDP number was a little over two percent in 2019, we were still going backwards on a per capita basis. So now we're in kind of, as I said, a minus five to ten, minus 10. I don't even call it a forecast. We call it a guess for 2020. Um, if we and if we are uh, anywhere near right, we might see a 10% decline in GDP per capita for 2020. So then the question is, will we be any better in 2021? Are we looking for a sharp rebound in the headline GDP number? It's hard to see that happening for a number of reasons. I mean, to begin with, 
no one is going to be investing in 2020. I mean, no one is looking at physical infrastructure. Uh, both the foreign investors and the domestic investors can't really do their due diligence, can't put things together in a way to start a new project. So it's hard to see any new investment uh, there. Oil price, I mean, there was just uh, Goldman Sachs came out this morning and said that the oil is not going to resume its uh, previous level of, of uh, consumption around the globe, at least until 2022 or 2023. So it's hard to see oil price again kind of having a sharp rise on that. Diaspora remittances are a huge part of Nigerian and uh, sub-Saharan African economy in many, many countries. It's the largest source of foreign exchange in Nigeria. I think the, the projection from the World Bank is that it would decline at least 10%, I believe, but you could see a bigger decline. So all of the sources, the impetuses to growth are, um, are, are, are going to be subdued through 2021 as well. Um, but the biggest challenge in that Nigeria is facing right now is a fiscal crisis. So those who follow it closely have seen the budgets being slashed. The um, revenue from oil projection is slashed from 5.5 trillion Naira to 1.1 trillion Naira. Um, and the result is you're just under this enormous fiscal pressure. Uh, there was a headline that 99% of the Nigerian government's revenue is going to pay to pay interest. So this is not a sustainable situation. And I think you're going to start to see um, defaults by states who are unable to pay their salaries, for example, uh, starting certainly, I think, July, August, as the impact of lower oil price rolls through. So I think that there's just enormous challenges in the, in the Nigerian economy at the moment. And we just can't see any scenario where you have um, a fast... Um, rebound in 2021. When you read in the news that you see most of the Nigerian state governments have uh, suspended capital projects uh, to mitigate sort of, you know, sort of uh, the physical damage that it might have. But do you think that's the right decision when uh, they really need to create economic activity? Well, I, I think in a sense, this is a forced restructuring. So the, the states in Nigeria uh, in theory, can can borrow money, but uh, the reality is no one is going to lend them any additional money at the present time. So they're not able to print the currency, and if they don't have uh, Naira, they can't act. They're forced to suspend these projects. So, I mean, if we look around the world in developed uh, countries, we have fiscal stimulus that ranges from 10 to even 25% of GDP, enormous numbers. The total fiscal stimulus in um, Nigeria is probably one and a half to two percent of GDP from the federal government, but as you say, the states are being forced into this restructuring. Um, I think that uh, the way we've put it over the last um, uh, few months is is we are entering this phase of forced restructuring in in Nigeria from a fiscal viewpoint because just what happened in the past can't continue. So we've already seen adjustments of exchange rates. So there was a devaluation of the official rate from three hundred five to three sixty. There was a narrowing of the INE window with the official rate. So the INE window is at 390. Um, of course, the parallel rate's blown out to about 450 or a little higher right now. But it's been very clear the finance minister has already come out and said, we're going to unify the exchange rates for the next year. Now, that decision had been delayed for years and years and years, and now it's being forced. Fuel subsidy, the same thing. That decision had been delayed, delayed, delayed. And now they've come out and said there'll be no more fuel subsidy. Um, what you've highlighted about the states just just shows this restructuring is going to continue in Nigeria. And there's no the question is whether it's going to be an orderly fiscal and economic restructuring or, or disorderly. And obviously, there are a lot of um, security issues that have also kind of arisen in Nigeria over the last uh, last few years, but certainly coming to a head at the present time. So it's a very 
pivotal moment in uh, in Nigeria history. Um, and as I said, I think the critical issue is whether it's going to be an orderly transition to a new economic structure and whether the federal government and the state apparatus will be able to kind of keep control of this over the next over the next few months and, and years. But very, very challenging. Patricia, if I could bring you into the conversation from a, an East African perspective um, over the, the COVID-19 period, what, what support challenges have you seen from your clients? Uh, thanks, Alan. I, I suppose from my perspective, um, our clients have been impacted in lots of different ways, and it really does depend on what sectors they're in. I would say the key impact we've seen has been mainly to do with operational issues. You know, since uh, the first cases were reported, border closures and you know associated health checks have really stemmed the flow of goods across borders in the East African region. So what we've seen is quite a, a huge impact in terms of supply chains um, and businesses are and have been struggling to get uh, crucial imports in as well as export to external markets. If I can pick on one uh, sector in particular in East Africa, um, it's obviously horticulture, where we saw a, a collapse in demand for um, f- fresh cut flowers uh, on the European side, uh, which has led to thousands of job losses across uh, Ethiopia and Kenya. So primarily it has uh, been operational, but we're also starting to see some of the economic impacts um, of, of COVID-19 really tra- take hold in, in recent months. The other thing I would perhaps point out is from our perspective um, around political stability. Um, It had been anticipated that um, COVID-19 and the associated economic fallout might have some huge implications for politics in the region. But so far, what we've seen is that some governments have been able to, I suppose, consolidate authority um, using some of the restrictions and movement um, to really uh, dampen opposition and civil society groups um, and really weaken their ability to mobilize. The only two countries I would highlight as potential flashpoints are at the moment Sudan and uh, Ethiopia, where we see administrations that are increasingly under pressure, um, both from a political perspective and an economic perspective. And the local populations are really starting to agitate for the governments to take more action. The last thing I would point out is, um, unlike, I suppose, in in more developed economies, the governments, the African governments have only very limited means to extend, you know, support to small and medium enterprises, um, to have tax relief schemes, for example. Um, But unfortunately, these are not having the intended impact of limiting some of the socioeconomic um, fallout from the pandemic. That's because uh, economies in the region are primarily informal. So these kind of more formal measures such as tax breaks, yes, they are helping those who are formally employed, but the vast majority of people um, are not necessarily going to benefit from some of these measures. As a result of that, you do see this desire for, on the part of the government as well as businesses in the region to really get back to this business as usual. And we started to see the easing of lockdowns across the entire continent, even though we're not really anticipated to reach the peak of the pandemic uh, for the next month or so. So it's been a mixed bag in the region, I would say. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting. So, so you know, the the stimulus packages that we're we're seeing, um, 
uh, across the globe, obviously, in, in African governments, it's uh, quite challenging. It probably brings us on to talking about uh, social safe, safety nets to a certain degree. And uh, I was reading something a couple of weeks ago, you know, according to the, the World Bank, uh, an estimated 36% of very poor communities escaped extreme poverty because of these safety nets. But yet in low-income countries, around one in five, um, they're, they're still lacking these particular programs. And do you see things moving in this area where governments are trying to put the right um, programs in place to help the most vulnerable? Absolutely. I think one of the things that the pandemic has really brought forward to African government is this very fact that a lot of their population does not really benefit from some of these formal measures. So there's been a real push uh, to try and extend some of the existing programs, which had been set up to uh, support more rural communities. And now the shift in focus has been to urban communities, which have been more hard hit by some of the restrictions in movement, for example. So what we've seen is uh, governments across the East African region extend things like cash transfers, um, Places like Uganda and Rwanda were already um, or have already set up food distribution for some of the more vulnerable communities. Um, and this has been largely as a result of the pandemic. So what remains to be seen is whether or not, you know, these structures that are being put in place right now are actually going to extend beyond, you know, the life of, of the, you know, the pandemic. And that's because the biggest problem around providing social safety nets or welfare programs for vulnerable populations has always been where do governments get the financing from? So far in, in the context of the pandemic, there's been a push from donor countries, especially in Western donor countries, to support some of these initiatives. But in the longer term, where we're seeing tax revenues decline, where we're seeing governments having to um, allocate more of their budgets towards debt servicing obligations, um, the, this fate of, of social safety net programs, which have been set up as a result of the pandemic, um, is really unclear at this moment in time. So I suppose that that positions where we are today. Um, it'd be quite interesting just to look beyond the current situation and see where the opportunities might lie. Interestingly enough, um, I've, I've had a, a number of private equity firms from an African perspective looking to raise capital in the current environment, which is really positive. Um, but what are the lasting impacts of the sort of uh, inter-Africa trade programmes? Um, and collaboration. Do, do you see beyond this that um, Africa will start trading uh, with each other um, and that will be a key focus? I think one of the things that the pandemic has really brought to the fore is this uh, huge global interdependence, um, which had been fine when you know borders are open and things are, are moving freely. But obviously, once borders started closing and we have um, more protectionist or more inward-looking policies from especially Africa's biggest trading partners, it started to spur African governments towards trading with one another a little bit more. If we think of initiatives such as the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement that had been hugely hyped in the past year um, and had to be put on hold for the pandemic, but I would say it's one of the things that will really need to be prioritised um, in the post-COVID period, whenever that might be. Um, there's a realisation that there's a need to 
somewhat decrease the reliance on global supply chains, but perhaps also look to benefit from some of the the other Western or other uh, countries uh, who are looking to decrease their reliance on Asian manufacturing. So there is some opportunity there around, first of all, increasing regional trade so as to increase um, uh, I suppose, decrease um, global dependence. And then secondly, that other element of looking to benefit from Western countries that are looking to decrease their reliance on Asian manufacturing. Andrew, it'd be, be great to bring you in to, you know, take your thoughts. Um, so, you know, post-COVID-19 or as, as things improve from a Nigerian perspective, the entrepreneurial spirits and the opportunities that I've seen over the last five or six years of traveling into to Nigeria, you know, what, what opportunities do you see and, and how investors might be able to maximize them? Well, I, I think as difficult as this period has been and, and will be for some time, I mean, our, our view has been that uh, medium term and long term, Nigeria and, and certainly sub-Saharan Africa as a whole are continue to be kind of the destination of choice in the world. I mean, just to put some numbers on this, if I, if I have this right, I think there are um, uh, perhaps, five, I may have it wrong, but 5 million uh, babies are going to be born in Europe this year. Um, uh, and 40 million babies are going to be born in Africa, which means in 20 years, there's going to be 20, sorry, 40 million Africans that are 20 years old who will start to consume, and there's only going to be 5 million Europeans. So just the sheer demographic mathematics mean that Africa is, is the future. Um, in addition, AFCFTA, free trade agreement. There was a lot of goodwill moving towards this around the continent, a kind of pan-Africanism. Um, and I think, you know, as we've discussed here, that the fact that people view globalization as more risky means Africans will start trading with, with, with Africans. Uh, higher value-added products, uh, increased amount of manufacturing, and higher-end services in, in the continent. So I think in the medium term, it still should be the destination of choice. Nigeria is still the biggest economic story on the on the planet, um, and we've been saying that forced restructuring that I referred to a little bit earlier. We've been saying this is, in a sense, the the opportunity for Nigeria. I mean, some of the things I outlined that have already happened show you the the direction of travel. So I, I'm expecting in 2021, 2022, investors are going to really see Nigeria and Africa, sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, as as, as the place to be. I mean, in a place of shrinking and aging population in Europe, I mean, the total demand, total markets are not are not increasing. Here you can create a market and you can create a, a huge business. So as difficult as the current period is, we are optimistic on the future. I know that we've been talking about uh, East and West, um, but um, South Africa um, is, uh, is going through some difficult times, as you'll know. Um, it'd be great to get your opinions, but just before, I just want to frame that actually, um, all the opportunities that I've seen from a private equity perspective over the course of the last three or four weeks have been coming from South Africa. So there is there is uh, capital raising taking place and people looking at opportunities. But from your perspective, given your sort of um, uh, global uh, view of Africa, what, what what are you seeing from a South African perspective? Well, I think we all we all know that South Africa was already in a, a recession. It's had a difficult uh, few years under the Zuma administration and some difficulty taking off after that. Uh, already in a recession, COVID-19 um, come along. It had one of the most draconian lockdowns in the world. So the economy come to a, you know, a shuddering halt. 
Um, it had 30% unemployment before all of this, which has just been soaring. So, but again, a little bit like Nigeria. So we've had the last few years, both the two largest economies in sub-Saharan Africa, in a sense, dragging down the whole continent. So we had lots of bright spots in East Africa, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, Ethiopia, Botswana, of course, Rwanda. Um, and yet the whole continent being dragged down by these the, the two giants of it. And I, in South Africa and Nigeria have had different reasons for it. Um, but I do think South Africa, again, a little bit like Nigeria, is kind of in a moment of truth. I mean, the current situation can't continue. They're, gonna, they're projected to have an 8% contraction in uh, GDP in 20, 2020. They're struggling with ESCOM, Transnet, uh, SAA uh, in, in bankruptcy, and they're going to have to really restructure these state-owned enterprises going forward and have a, a real rethink. So I think that... Um, Again, having a positive view, I'm not surprised that the you know, smart money is thinking about the, the future in South Africa because they're going to have to make changes that make you know, to bring you know, kind of more inclusive growth to the society. So I, I think a positive view on all of this is both Nigeria and South Africa are going to emerge and 2022 is kind of much stronger, you know, both for their people, for sustainable growth, but also for investors. Super. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew and Patricia. That, that concludes our podcast for today. Um, if people are really interested in hearing more, please do visit our website at www.jerseyfinance.je. You can also follow us on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn and Instagram. Thank you.